The following show has a lot of explicit content. I'm sure you'll like it because of that. It's Friday, May 25th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Hi. We have an update on the gist user agreement. Effective May 25th, the gist has changed its user agreement. At the gist, we strive to make our policies clear and our services easy to use. As part of that commitment, we're announcing some changes to the gist, now a GDPR-compliant podcast. We've included details about how we use your information, including your rights and ability to control your personal data. Please take a moment to listen to our revised privacy policy. We have created a new privacy policy, and we clarify which data we collect. If you submit an email to the gist, we will attempt to do opposition research into you and to convince ourselves that you look like sort of a loser. Doesn't even have a lot of friends on Facebook. Or conversely, look at how many friends this loser has on Facebook. Probably spends all their time on Facebook. We have updated the language around fees. The gist is free. It has always been free, and it will always be free. Now, if you notice, on Apple Podcasts, there are six columns. Name, time, date released, description, popularity, and price. And the price on every podcast we have ever seen is free. And yet, it's still a column. We just wanted to clarify that. We've also thoroughly reviewed the third-party vendors we work with to ensure that they meet GDPR standards and make sure the data we share with them is limited and secure. Now, no one who sells postage, meals in a box, financial services, hiring services, cars, ice cream, hotels, underwear, or fitted shirts, to our knowledge, will track you, spam you, or sell your shirt size to a third-party vendor. However, Because of GDPR standards, we have ended our previous relationships with the following. Cambridge Analytica, the Mercer Family Foundation, the Lucchese Family Foundation, Hypnotic Taxi LLC, Milky Way Cab Corps, Bourbon Taxi LLC, Essential Consultants, Important Advisors, Vital Experts, Imperative Authorities, Fundamental Mavens, Quintessential guys in baggy suits smoking cigars outside of hotels, LLC. We've also formalized our refund policy to increase our transparency with you. Would you like a refund? No. We trust that's transparent. And finally on the gist, in order to conform to GDPR standards, we are announcing that the spiel will henceforth be available in Walloon, Welsh, and Basque. Akin ar e trithwid hir e lafar. It is through this mutually agreed upon respect for you as a listener, nudged along by Hague based socialists, that we strive to serve you better in the upcoming days and years. And as they say in Cardiff, mehin in anfredigo farches. On the show today, a beloved candy company is going out of business. But here's the thing they're not beloved. They've just been around for a long time. But first, David Wayne is a director of Comedy Fair. He's also a founding member of The State, the MTV comedy show The State. And his Netflix film about National Lampoon examines an iconic and iconoclastic comedy institution of its own.
So if I were to make a musical analogy to the importance and place of the national lampoon at its founding, I was first thinking of the Velvet Underground, that famous line about uh, only 30,000 people bought albums, but everyone who did founded their own band. Well, it's true in terms of influence, but the National Lampoon also had fantastic sales. So maybe it's a little like Sgt. Pepper. But the thing about Sgt. Pepper is even though it was ahead of its time and extremely influential, listening to it today, it was so influential that it doesn't seem as extraordinary as it was. The thing about the National Lampoon, if, if you go back to those beginning and early issues, they were so outrageous and the culture has shifted so much that it's not the case that was what once outrageous then has been absorbed into the mainstream. In fact, some of the stances they took seem even more outrageous now. So this is just some of the thoughts that hit me as I was watching A Futile and Stupid Gesture, the Netflix film that's essentially a biopic about the founding of the National Lampoon and Doug Kenny, the founder. It was directed by David Wayne, who joins me now. Thank you for uh, suffering through that long introduction, David. I enjoyed that. I thought it was very interesting. Yeah, I was just trying to make the analogy. Do you have one? Do, if uh, you were trying to explain the place of the lampoon to someone who doesn't have comedy in their DNA like you do? I thought that was pretty good. I mean, and you're right. It was much more than the Velvet Underground because it was popular. It was a zeitgeist. Like, everyone was talking about it at the time. Yeah. But uh, And you're right. So much of what they did even today or even more so today is just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, my God. Yeah. The, the Vietnamese, I mean, let's just pick one thing out, but they had a Vietnamese dead baby issue. Right. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, a baby book uh, for a Vietnamese baby who's been mauled. Uh, yeah, it's, it's quite something. And I think that the uh, part of their point was, let's see how far we can push it, and we don't care what anyone thinks. And um, uh, amazingly today, the we don't care what anyone thinks is not as much uh, in evidence in, in comedy, which is unfortunate, I think. So as you're doing, as you're putting together and helming this movie about the germinal stages of essentially a comedy collective, you weren't there. It predates you by 20 years. But I would bet in a lot of ways you were there. Like you knew exactly some of the discussions and what they were going through. Well, certainly there were so many parallels uh, to what we were doing at the time. And that's part of what attracted me to the material is Doug Kenny himself was from Northeast Ohio as I was moving to the East Coast to kind of be part of that scene and be among smart people and then finding like-minded uh, minds in college and then taking the comedy they did in college to a national stage. All, all of those things I share with Doug Kenny. And then those early sessions where they feel like they're the kids in the playhouse just goofing around and putting out this magazine, yeah, definitely felt like something that I, I went through too. And they really were, I think the Lampoon and Doug Kenny were real trailblazers. I mean, I know that at the moment, the uh, counterculture was in ascendance, but had anyone really been doing it in America, in comedy, as fiercely and as with as much impact as the Lampoon was doing it then? From anything we can find our research, absolutely no way. That was the whole thing that was so explosive about it. It was the first of its kind, and they held the torch of countercultural comedy uh, all the way until SNL came. What was the source material? And wrapped up in that question is, how did you decide to do it basically as the story of Doug Kenny set against the backdrop of the Lampoon rather than maybe the other way around? 
I mean, it actually started with our screenwriters, Colton and Abood, reading about Doug Kenny and realizing that there was this central figure in the evolution of the comedy that we all grew up with and, and were so influenced by that this person, though, that we didn't really know much about. This book by Josh Karp is a bio of Doug Kenny, and that was our, our starting point and source material. And we optioned the book, and this is now eight years ago, and then started the long road to turning it into a movie. And one of the things that, I mean, you could easily have made a movie that took it from any point of view, from from Michael O'Donohue's point of view or Ann Beat's point of view or from or just a general lampoon story. But what makes Doug so fascinating to me is this is somebody that most people, including myself, had not really been familiar with, and yet he was so pivotal and so specifically individually influential. And and Colton and Abood, who I worked with, I don't know, 15 years ago <laughs> to do comedy sketches for On the Media. I love those guys. Yeah. But they did the same thing that uh, Doug Kenny did and that you did in that they had this site and this group, this comedy collective called Modern Humorist. I guess so many generations go through this same thing. Yeah, exactly. And they also were in the Harvard Lampoon, so they knew that scene as well. Right. So the thing about the Harvard Lampoon is, and it's still really influential on comedy, it's uh, definitely got its smarty pants side, but it also has its had its devil may care side. And I don't know if Doug Kenny embodied both of those, um, but he was certainly the Midwestern, as you said, the Ohio Midwestern representative of that on the Lampoon. Well, and I think he loved that dichotomy. He He was... As we say in the movie, he was a preppy and a hipster and also this like, ah, shucks, I'm just from Chagrin Falls, Ohio. And he loved that contrast, I think. You're not really a preppy, are you? You're not a hippie either. No, I'm both. I'm a preppy. Mm. I think what you are is a kid from Chagrin Falls, Ohio who borrowed his roommate's tuxedo to look like he grew up on the Upper East Side. Me too. Mm -hmm. Well, that is... Exactly right. Yeah. Now, I want to ask you, there. so there was a lot of uh, humor that wouldn't fly today, given our sensitivities. And to some extent, I would criticize our quote-unquote sensitivities. To another extent, there was rampant sexism, and they used the comedy to make fun of women. I understand all that, and I understand these were the times. No question. Yeah. And, and you, there's no sugarcoating of that. However, I always point out that... In the whole slobs versus snobs dynamic, it has entirely flipped in America. And it used to absolutely be the case that the underdog were the slobs, was the Delta House, was the guy from the National Lampoons. And part of tearing down the fusty old ways had a lot to do with uh, sexuality. Now, sometimes this showed up in the form of what we'd now call sexism, but it was just kind of outlandish, you know, if you want to look at it kindly, it was outlandish and it was immature, but it was very much, it shouldn't be looked at that harshly, some of it, because it was exactly of the same piece that was questioning Nixon, right? Or that was questioning kind of uh, all of our old mores that weren't working out for us, even if we are having the backlash in that one area. That's right. And it, but it, but it, as you delve deep, as you're starting to do, it, it does then get complicated. Yeah. You know, it's it's not as simple as it felt when you're watching Animal House and you're like, look how they're kind of abusing these women. Isn't that funny? You know, was there a uh, careful dance that you had to uh, execute to not make him totally unlikable, but also to show that this is what they did? 
Kind of, although I th- it was important to me not to try to uh, shave down the edges, you know. Mm-hmm. And some of what they did in Lampoon, I think you could say today without any context, and it's still incredible. And some of it, you need to kind of add that you had to be there qualification. Yeah, and you also have a moment where you briefly address, but I'm glad you do address, there are basically going to be no black people in the movie you're about to see. And Chris Red shows up, who's on Saturday Night Live and, a, and, a, and an actress, right. and they make that point. And I thought that was really well done. I thought that was important to say, and not, you don't have to dwell on it, but it was well done. And it was, it, it, the movie went through so many different iterations, you know, so, so much uh, tone adjustment as we went through the process over a couple of years. And one of the things we did was we actually had a lot more of those acknowledgments and you could almost look at them as apologies for the different ways that things have changed. And we had to we we ended up cutting back quite a bit on that because we didn't want to go too far in in apologizing. We wanted to just acknowledge and explain without apologizing. Yeah. And I would think that there's only uh, it's diminishing returns. It's I don't think that right. you're going to convince anyone who doesn't want to be convinced. But it's also important exactly. not to gloss over it. And it was interesting because you know at the at this moment it is what it is. But yes, we're making a movie that's largely about white men, and that's what it is. You know. Did you come out of this movie liking Chevy Chase more than you were going in than you did going in? I would say short answer is yes, because I felt like as you get into the history of his early time with Doug, I mean, he obviously was and always will be, you know, a controversial figure with a lot of pros and cons. But um, he was, from what we can tell, you know, he was an interesting guy and a good friend to Doug and probably also a bad influence in some ways. But he really was a good, he really was a good friend. He was a good friend, and I and I think you know, Chevy Chase has a pretty terrible reputation uh, generally now. I don't know him; I've never met him, so I couldn't speak to it firsthand. But um, we were exploring who he was way back when. You work with almost a repertoire, a repertory troupe, I would say. I mean, it's ill-defined. It's definitely most of your original castmates from the state. And let's expand the circle to Wet Hot American Summer. And let's expand the circle uh, a little more into, you know, children's hospitals. So we're, we're talking about that realm of comedy. But then when you could pull in someone totally outside that realm, realm like Admiral Hux from the Star Wars movies, who Dom Hall Gleason. Um, that must be very exciting for you. It's so awesome. I mean, this was an idea that, you know, we're, we're casting Henry Beard, this, you know, New England dark hair type uh, and this kid. And the last person you'd think of is Donald Gleason. But one of our producers, John Stern, was like, I think somehow this might be the right idea. And we reached out and somehow got him involved. And it turns out he was very interested in comedy and interested in the role. And he brought this whole other level to it. And that, and one of the great pleasures of being a director is seeing different actors and how they work and what they do and what they bring to something and the, the, their mindset. And um, Donal is one of the smartest, most interesting people I've ever met. And he, he brought a lot of ideas to his character and to the script. And it was really cool. Does he react to being in the middle of a bunch of players who's, who've probably done a lot of things before? I mean, just in terms of like the ex-SNL players. We haven't mentioned that Will Forte is your main character. A lot yeah. of these characters have acted before, and he's maybe a little bit of the newcomer. Does he have a reaction to that? 
Yes. I mean, he definitely felt like, wow, I'm coming and playing in this playground with these, this group, you know, and I, I think a lot of people have felt that way. Uh, you know, Alyssa Milano talked about that when she came and worked with us on Wet Hot American Summer. And I think a lot of these more actors that haven't been in our world really enjoy the fun of coming in and playing with our team, you know, cause it's people who come from sketch comedy and improv are, I think, by and large, very kind of warm, inviting, inclusive types. And so it's always a lot of fun. Whatever friction there was with Doug in his life, um, do all of them now look at him fondly? Yeah, I think, I mean, as far as anyone could tell us, in fact, some of us, some of the people we spoke to looked at him, I think, with more uh, rose-colored glasses than they did in earlier reports yeah <laughs> and and so i think with time uh you soften the, the lens um so we you know we went back to a lot of um contemporary sources as well from, i mean from the time but we did speak in great detail to a lot of the players and that's where we got a lot of our insight because obviously both um myself and the writers are too young to have been anywhere near it did you read every issue of the National Lampoon from the Doug Kenny era? No. <laughs> Did you not want to go back and? It's not that yourself? I didn't want to. It's just that it, even even though it was an eight year process, by the time we really got it going, it was um, an insanely ambitious, gigantic a task to direct and and handle this movie with so many different time periods and locations and cast members, and there was so much going on that I depended very heavily on Colton and Abood, who were the exhaustive researchers, writers on this, and they read every book, every issue, every everything, and it, it couldn't have been a one-man job. Were there, there too many people involved. Was there any old Lampoon article that is, is not one of the still celebrated ones that you came across that you were like, wow, this is good? I really, I can't think of one. And the reason is that the ones that really struck me, I got them into the movie some one way or another. <laughs> yeah. David Wayne is the director of A Futile and Stupid Gesture. You know I know the, that. Yeah, that is true. Oh, oh you're telling the, other, the audience. Okay, got <laughs> it. This is, and then when I will say, thank you, David Wayne, you might say to yourself, wait a minute, why is he using my full name? Why are we being oddly formal? Mm. But I will say, thank you, David Wayne. Thank you so much. And now the spiel to big-time candy news, KRON Channel 4 reports. A well-known candy maker has a new owner. The New England Confectionery Company makes Necco wafers and those sweethearts conversation hearts that you see all over on Valentine's Day. Yes, for all your chalk-based candy needs, it's Necco. But that's not all. Today, the Ohio-based Spangler Candy Company paid $18.8 million to acquire the company in bankruptcy court. Spangler makes Dum Dums lollipops. Ah, Dum Dums. The first name, and the first name again, in tiny hard pieces of colored sugar attached to a stick. There's nothing like a Dum Dum lollipop, except literally every other lollipop available. Dum Dums, perfect for putting out in bank lobbies or leaving as the absolute last thing touched in your Halloween bag. Well, right next to the Necco wafers and maybe those horrible orange circus peanuts.
Finally, dum-dums and Necco wafers together again. Oh, and by the way, do you know who owns Horrible Orange Circus Peanuts? It is the Spangler Candy Company of Ohio, which just bought Necco wafers. But now the logical question is, why was this blue chip, sorry, beige wafer company even on the market? The New England Confectionery Company filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy last month, citing competition from multinational candy makers. It's interesting to think that it would take overseas competition to bring a terrible candy that doesn't really taste good but turns your fingers different colors to its knees. I've seen an outpouring of love for Necco because anytime a candy or a treat is said to be imperiled, it inspires a particular type of nostalgia. Food nostalgia is kind of a redundant nostalgia because I believe the way food works on our senses, yes, Proust with the Madelines, yes, sense memory, but I believe that food evokes memory for a reason other than the actual food. I, in fact, subscribe to the David Mamet theory. Great meals fade in reflection. Everything else gains. You know why? Because it's only food. The shit we put in us keeps us going. It's only food. Now, at this point, you're saying, wrong, wrong. I remember tons of great meals. I remember this wonderful meal, three courses, five courses I had on the banks of the River Seine. I remember the managati my grandmother used to make. I remember the fe I had in Vietnam. And I looked across the table, and I realized for the first time that I loved this woman who would become my wife. No, you're not remembering the meals, meaning you're not remembering the taste of the food, not the actual taste. I do not believe you can actually remember taste. We think with our brains, but we taste with our tongue. We can conjure some memories surrounding the food and maybe the feeling we got when the food was a centerpiece or at least involved, but we can't really think of the food. Look, what song was playing the year you first got your license when you and your friends would drive around in your car and sing that song that came on? For me, it was Despacito. I just recently got back my license. No, 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 no. For me, it was the Joshua Tree, and I have a lot of memories and a lot of nostalgia for that time. But just like you may think you have memories for Necco wafers, God forbid, you actually have memories of their associations. But it's different with my memories, because I'm a better rememberer. No, but it's different with my memories of the Joshua Tree, because with music, you can close your eyes and, and hear it, and then you can actually sing it. You're really experiencing it in a different way, at a different part of your brain and body than you are with food. Same thing with the visual. Star Wars, close your eyes. You see Chewie and Han running in the Death Star. You are actually seeing it. And then food nostalgia, or tasting nostalgia, is different from seeing and hearing nostalgia. So in the Wall Street Journal, they wrote, Some Twitter users rejoiced about the news of the purchase, meaning the purchase of the Necco Company with Spangler of Ohio. One wrote, I love Necco wafers. This makes me happy. So I looked it up on Twitter to check in on the rejoicement. No, not much rejoicement. There are more references to chalk than love associated with the hashtag Necco wafers. But the media loves to play up this angle. On CNBC, they tried to do a report on the run on Necco wafers, how popular they were back when it was rumored that the company would go out of business. And some of their reporting included, 
the Lexington candy shop sells one roll of Necco wafers for $1.50. Boxes of 24 rolls are retailing on eBay for $35 to $300. So first they establish the price of how much a regular candy shop has been selling Necco wafers, and that's $1.50. And then to try to capture the frenzy, they write, boxes of 24 rolls are retailing on eBay for $35 to $300. Well, let me tell you. If they're selling at retail for 35 to 300, it means they're selling for 35. I mean, I guess you could walk into a Starbucks and they're selling a coffee from three to 300 if you want to pay for it. But if three dollars will get the coffee, that's how much the coffee cost. Same with the 35 dollars for the box of 24 Necco wafers. By the way, I'll do the math for you. If one roll of Necco wafers cost a buck fifty, a box of 24 should cost $36. They're selling for $35. I guess you get a price break when you buy the case, but it doesn't exactly chronicle a run on Necco, does it? The Journal today goes on about Necco wafers, saying that they've been around since the Civil War. Wow, it's surprising they were popular in the Civil War. Let's check in on what else soldiers ate during the Civil War. Hardtack, a mixture of water and flour formed into a large cracker, was a staple of the Union soldiers' diet. Often called sheet iron crackers or teeth dullers, hardtack was virtually unbreakable and usually softened in water. Their meat, called salt horse, was salted or pickled beef and pork. Also noted, American soldiers in World War II were supplied with Necco wafers. You see, when soldiers were captured behind enemy lines toward the end of the war when cyanide was in low supply, they would just bite on the Necco wafer and then a sweet sensation would sweep over them. Not the Necco, death. I'm talking about death. Finally, I will leave you with this quote that encapsulated all the misleading nostalgia about food and the Necco wafer. It's also from the journal. A Twitter user wrote, Necco wafers were always around grandma's house. Long history classic Americana. No, my friend, that memory you long to return to is not the Necco wafer. It's grandma. She is the sweet and significantly dusty remembrance you yearn for. And that's it for today's show. So this is just episode 1001. We've gone back. We've looked at the records. It means that just producer Pierre Bienname is on his GIST episode 137. Mary Wilson, GIST senior producer, is on her personal episode 509. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of the GIST, has been here since January 7th, 2016, making this GIST episode 590 for him. The GIST, oh, wait a minute. I've been out and we've had guest hosts like Zoe Chase and Dan Savage and Rob Smith and Sean Ramaswaram and Aisha Harris and David Plotz. I mean, they're all losers who never amounted to anything. But what I'm saying is I might only be in the high 980s. There is time to get this thing right yet. Umpru depru dupru. And this weekend, you may wish to listen to our bonus episode of Upon Further Review. Thanks for listening. And just remind me, for because I have a crazy life, and what is this on? Oh, this, just, this is just for my own edification. I'm just a huge <laughs> okay, fan. Uh, it's The Gist. It's the Slate podcast, The Gist. It is oh, yes. a Very daily good. podcast that is well regarded by many. <laughs> I'm, going to tr- I'm going to subscribe to it right now.